Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is Rates Present Opportunities Across the Risk Spectrum, and it's for institutional and professional investors. I'm Karen Ward, Chief Market Strategist with our Global Market Insights Strategy Group. With me today is Lorenzo Napolitano, Investment Grade Portfolio Manager, and Thomas Hauser, our High Yield Portfolio Manager within JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Okay, Lorenzo, let's start with you. And maybe if we begin with what you expect to happen with the Fed and where you think government bond yields are going, and then we can talk about what that means for the credit markets. Sure. Our house view at GFIC is that the market is underpricing the Fed and its path for rate hikes. So for 2018, we're calling for four hikes, the market's closer to three. And then looking out to 2019, our call is for another three hikes, and the market's closer to one. Essentially, in this environment, we expect rates to continue to drift higher. We think the growth backdrop is strong enough to warrant a faster pace of tightening than the market is currently anticipating. We're thinking U.S. growth comes in around two and three quarters to three percent in 2018, which is well above the two percent-ish trend that we've seen since the financial crisis. And then if you add in the benefits of fiscal policy, whether that be from lower taxes or fiscal spending, we could see three to three and a quarter GDP in 2019. We think as the market prices in a forecast closer to ours, and if growth comes in as expected, we think this will naturally pressure rates higher. The key to our view, though, is that we don't see rates gapping higher, which would be very disruptive to risk assets. Rather, we see a steady rise higher, mostly because we still have a backstop of accommodative monetary policy globally, with the ECB still purchasing bonds, albeit at a lower pace as they taper their Gubby purchases, and the BOJ pursuing yield curve control, targeting 10-tier JGBs at 0%. So we think that'll provide a natural backstop. And having said all that, we think 10s could see 3% by the end of the year, potentially as high as three and a quarter to three and a half. And then when we look further into 2019, when this flow dynamic changes and central bank balance sheets go from expansion to contraction, the ECB is expected to finish their QE by the end of the year, and you have the Fed on this course of winding down their balance sheet, that's when we see potential for 10s to get to as high as 4%. Interesting. So your profile is actually for the economy to be accelerating through the next two years, which is, as you say, the fiscal stimulus has really changed the backdrop. You know, at the end of last year, I think the question was really whether we would be facing a downturn at the end of 2018. But the profile has really changed that dramatically from the fiscal stimulus, you think? Yeah, we've been in an environment of synchronized global growth for the last year or so. And now that you add this fiscal policy and fiscal spend into the mix, you know, we could definitely see the economy growing at a very brisk pace this year and into next year. And you know, to the point on fiscal policy, a lot of this needs to be financed somehow, and that's likely going to come through greater issuance. So you combine potentially shrinking central bank balance sheets in 19 with greater treasury issuance and a strong growth environment, you know, the clear path for us is just higher rates. Thinking about what that means for investment grade, 
the 10-year reaching 3%, how would that affect the investment grade market? And does your assessment change when we start to think about the possibility of the 10-year getting to 4%? Sure. So our market generally does well in periods of rising rates because it brings out yield buyers, particularly those in the pension and insurance community. But also rising rates and Fed tightening tend to be indications that the growth environment is strong, which is naturally supportive for corporates from a cash flow and earnings perspective. So it's not until we approach the end of the rate hiking cycle where the Fed begins to limit potential growth via tighter financial conditions and the market begins to price in a recession that we see spreads start to widen. A key for us, though, is just looking at total returns. I mean, we're already down two and three quarters percent in the IG index year to date. That's with this current backup in rates that we've seen. If we do approach 4% by 19, the potential for negative total returns is still a risk for our market. And Thomas, can I put the same question to you? How would a 3% 10-year affect the high-yield market? And can the high-yield market cope with the interest rates moving towards 4% through 2019? Sure. You know, I think our view is consistent. Obviously, the consensus view out there is that rates will rise. I think the question is how much and how fast. And as Lorenzo mentioned, I think to the extent that it's gradual, and that is our view, the credit markets will absorb that. That's what we've seen to date. You know, with respect to the high yield market, we're even less correlated than the investment grade market. If you look longer term, we actually have a negative correlation to the treasury market. We're much more correlated with equities as we're down cap structure. You know, we've seen that obviously as spreads tighten, which we've done right now. We currently sit at around 375 over. We are getting more rate sensitive, certainly on the double B higher quality part of the market. We have seen more rate sensitivity this year as rates have backed up. We've seen double B's underperform. That's what you would expect to see. But I think to the extent that it's gradual, it's happening for the right reasons. I think that credit can withstand that, as Lorenzo said, global growth synchronized growth. We've not seen it in a while. It is translating into better top line, better cash flow, better earnings. And, you know, I think that's constructive. And I think the rate move is more of a normalization from being too accommodative. So, you know, I think it's the pace with how we get there is what's important. You know, with respect to the tightening, the Fed tightened three times in 2017 and high yield spreads were approximately 75 basis points tighter. You know, it's always at the end when we've gone too far as we're trying to wring out excesses that you see spreads begin to widen. I think in the early stages, what we've seen in past cycles is spreads will tighten in the early and it's only at the end when we've gone too far that they will widen. Can we talk for a minute about corporate leverage? Because we've seen for the U.S. in particular that the household sector has deleveraged to a quite significant degree, but Clearly, in recent years, you've seen a pickup in corporate leverage. Is there anything within the companies, within the markets that you look at that makes you concerned about leverage? And do you think that the credit markets could be more sensitive to rising rates this time around because of leverage? Is that something people should think about? You know, leverage is a clear warning sign for us that the IG market is in late cycle. I think a byproduct of this low rate environment that we've seen has been companies issuing a lot of debt to pursue M&A or to buy back shares. I mean, this has been very prevalent in the food BEV and pharma sectors where growth has been slow and competitive pressures has been high. 
We thought with the benefit of tax reform, companies may use some of this new cash to pay down this increased debt load. But in fact, most indications we have are that most of it's going to continue to go towards shareholder returns via more buybacks, particularly in the case of tech companies or another wave of M&A similar to the one we saw in 2016. You know, for us, we're definitely monitoring it. We're concerned about it. We do think higher rates may cause companies to issue less debt, but they're really going to need a strong growth backdrop to be able to delever. It's definitely an early indicator for us that our market is a little late cycle. On the high yield side, I'd say it's a little bit different. We've seen leverage statistics have been relatively stable. You know, we've not seen aggressive company behavior. We haven't seen the kind of LBO activity we saw pre-crisis. You know, I know IG leverage statistics have ticked up. We've not seen the same phenomenon happen in the high yield market. Behavior is more, you know, mid-ish late cycle, I would say, than truly late cycle in the high yield market. You know, with respect to rising rates, most issuance in high yield is opportunistic. So when it makes sense to refinance and it can be done cost effectively, they'll do that. If not, they won't. Interest coverage ratios are still at their highs, just given you know where we are with rates right now. So companies are able to service their debt fairly easily, even with an uptick in rates right now. Maybe let's talk about some of your regional views. You know, we focus very much on the U.S. and how changes in the tax landscape and the Fed are affecting your views on the US. What's your view on some other markets, the European market, for example? We're constructive on Europe as a whole, but there are pockets of Europe which we think are a little overheated, particularly the European IG market, which has benefited tremendously from the ECB and their bond buying programs. The ECB has essentially been cornering the industrial part of the Euro IG market. They currently own about 15% of that subset of the market. As we do get further through their tapering program and you take out an uneconomical buyer, you know, we do think this could cause volatility and spreads to reprice wider. However, we have seen the ECB taper a little more in their Govy purchases to start. We don't really see them tapering as much in credit until we get towards the end of the year. We still see them buying about $5 billion or so monthly. So we're not really ready to go underweight the European IG market just yet. But we do think kind of towards the end of the year, as their purchases slow, spreads and valuations will need to reprice wider. However, in that environment where the ECB's tapering and rates are rising in Europe, we do think that's good for the European banks. ECB has not been buying European bank paper, so we still see good relative value in the banks relative to industrials in Europe. So if we think about how credit fits within a portfolio, we've talked about the market's increased sensitivity to the prospect of rising inflation and rising yields. But you sense amongst investors that they're also concerned about equity valuations In terms of a diversified portfolio and protecting yourself from rising rates and rising inflation, where do you think, Thomas, high yield sits versus investment grade in that portfolio discussion? Sure. I mean, obviously, we're yielding and spreading a couple hundred basis points more than investment grade right now, even if you you kind of factor in some sense of default rate. Right now, we sit at 375 in spreads, you know, kind of six and a quarter, six and a half type yield environment. In the context of fundamentals that we talked about, a default rate that's in the one and a half to two percent range, 
low net supply out there, fairly stable leverage, and there still is a global need for yield. I mean, we see that internationally. We see that from domestic pension, et cetera. Everyone still has liabilities that need to be funded. You know, and high yield is still the space to get that. You know, I think this year, you know, we're expecting more of a range bound carry type year. As I said, we will absorb some of the rate rise as we've historically done. You know, I think we're going to see lower kind of single digit nominal returns for the asset class this year. But I think relative to higher quality investment grade type debt, I think the relative returns could be quite strong, even in the context of the equity market. I mean, we're obviously going to have a lot less volatility in the equity market. And, you know, I think a mid single digit type return will stack up well in this low return world we're in. We'd agree with that sentiment from a USIG perspective. I mean, spreads on our index at 100 OAS are still near the post-crisis tights. And we also have a much longer duration. So we're about a seven and a quarter year duration. With those numbers, you've only got about a 13 basis point cushion in spread terms until that carry is wiped out. You know, we had a 13 basis point move wider in our index in February alone. So the prospects for total and excess returns in USIG from a tighter spread and a longer duration starting point just seem much less attractive relative to high yield. Okay, so it seems the core view is pretty benign that the rise in inflation is going to be gradual. Therefore, the normalization of central bank policy is going to be very slow and gradual. And it's an environment, therefore, where both investment grade and high yield can continue to perform. So why don't we stress test that view for a minute and think about what could happen this year that would actually mean that your markets outperformed your expectations, that actually ended up a much stronger year for credit? What would happen to give rise to that scenario? For IG to really outperform high yield, we would probably need to see rates rally. And that's when duration becomes your friend. You know, if we think about protectionism going on with tariffs, or if we think about geopolitical events, those could naturally cause a bid into treasuries. And in that case, you might want to have a little more duration in your portfolio. But again, I think our base case is that this is a better environment for credit risks than duration risk. So a blend of USIG and high yield probably makes sense. You just really need to be able to pick your spots well and try to avoid any blow-ups because at the end of the day, we are still coming from reasonably tight spread levels in both markets. I think for high yield to outperform expectations out there right now, the interest rate environment, as Lorenzo said, would need to be more tame. You know, instead of the 10-year maybe going to three, three and a quarter this year, maybe it continues to hover in the 260s, 270s. We don't see inflation. You know, the Fed maybe has to be a touch less aggressive. You know, I think you just would get more of your coupon and more of your carry if you don't see interest rates rise and eat into that. I, I think that's how it would exceed expectations right now. But it would still need to be a environment, frankly, like we've seen for the past eight years. And that's just kind of two-ish odd percent growth, not creating excesses in the economy. And we just continue to plug along. And you would have a central bank that perhaps doesn't need to be as aggressive. So we've talked a lot about fundamentals. Let's maybe focus on technicals for a minute. How are fund flows the continued rise of ETFs and new issuance, how is that affecting your ability to manage your portfolios? On the technical front high yield, I think the story in 17, and it's really continued in 18, it was really the supply, you know, the net supply shrunk in our market for the first time since 2011. We did not have a lot of fallen angels that came into our market like we did in 15 and 16. 
most of or the preponderance of issuance was refinancing existing debt. We did not see a lot of new supply. There was a trend where a lot of bonds were called and refinanced with bank loans or via asset sales. So the technicals, while we did see outflows, retail outflows in 17 in the early part of 18, the real story was on the supply side that continued to shrink. And I think that's something that has continued here in 18 as well. As it relates to ETFs, they're about 2% of the market. You know, they have grown quite a bit and leveled off. Performance, it's been hard for high-yield ETFs to replicate the index. We've seen active managers outperform ETF product by 1% to 2% over the last five years. You know, I think it highlights a couple things. There are high transaction costs to the asset class. It's hard to replicate. You can't purchase an index. And so I think you can take advantage of some of the flows that you see both in and out of ETFs as an active manager. And that's something that we have done and will continue to do. I think they're here to stay. What it has done is it's moved some of the money that used to move in and out of mutual funds. And I think more of the tactical managers out there are using ETFs. The other trend that we've seen in the ETFs is that high yield managers are using them to help manage cash. And so some of the fund flow information we see, both inflows and outflows, tends to be double counted because you have managers getting in money and then they're going and turning around and either buying or selling the ETF. So you're getting a little bit of double counting as it relates to retail fund flows right now in the high yield market. I think it's fair to say that technicals have been a big driver of price action across all fixed income markets over the last few years particularly as you think about all the negative yielding bonds globally. I believe that number was north of $10 trillion at one point in 2016. It's just driven a massive wave of inflows into the USIG market and other U.S. rates markets, which is partly why we've gotten to such tight levels on the index. Any reversal of that would be a clear negative for our market. We've already seen the demand picture weaken some in the front end of the curve, partly as a result of repatriation. And from ETFs, I think they're a little less of a player in our market than they are relative to the high yield market. But if you think about the prospect for negative total returns in IG, that might not be very attractive for retail investors to be buying in right now if we do think that rates are heading higher. So you know, you combine that potential weakened demand picture with a supply backdrop that's been very heavy. I mean, we've seen record years for corporate issuance for about four or five years running now, topping $1.3 trillion in 2017. We don't see that supply slowing. And I think the ability of the market to absorb all this issuance, if we were to get sizable outflows, would cause a lot more spread volatility than we've been accustomed to. Coming back to what you said about the discrepancy between 2018 and 2019 of, you know, 2018 moving towards possibly a 3% 10 year, but 2019, you could be pushing more towards four. Does that technical picture that you've just described, does that search for yield in the retail space change? Does that mean that you'd be looking at a more challenging environment as we move through the year towards next year? Yeah, it certainly does from the perspective of total returns being negative in a long duration asset class. You really got to be careful buying into 3% yield if you think it's going to 4%. We're definitely expecting more volatility and potentially more challenging times than we've seen in these last few years where rates have been anchored by central bank policy. If we think about the volatility we've experienced over the past five or six weeks, it does feel there's some big questions in the global economy, whether inflation's coming back, how high rates are coming trade wars, all these things on the horizon. It feels like 
we're going to have to get used to a bit more volatility. How have you changed your portfolio management in light of this news? We have seen volatility pick up. Obviously, it's coming from an extremely low base for most of last year. You know, we like to see a little volatility as a bottoms up manager. That creates opportunity. You know, we came into this with a little bit shorter bias. We've preferred to be in the curve a little bit, just given what's happened in rates and given what's happened with the flattening of both credit and treasury curves. We were prepared for this. Our cash balances were a bit elevated. You know, as I said, we're overweight kind of the middle quality of the market, single Bs relative to double Bs. You know, we still think that given the fundamentals, there still is spread compression opportunity in the middle and, you know, perhaps even the higher quality triple C part of the market relative to double Bs where we don't see a lot of spread compression and we do see a lot of rate risk out the curve in double Bs. You know, we were positioned for a little bit of a pickup in volatility because it, it really was coming from such a low level. As we've moved out and seen spreads widen a bit, we've played a little bit more offense into that. I'd say our approach is very similar to what Tom described. I would say from an IG lens, the volatility that impacts us the most is simply the interest rate volatility. We've been working on shortening up the duration of our portfolios just to kind of limit the impact of having too much duration in a rising rate environment. And in this macro backdrop where growth is strong, we've also been moving more into cyclicals versus non-cyclicals because we have seen lots of leveraging transactions amongst some non-cyclical sectors such as pharma, food, and bev. We also like metals. We think metals do well in an inflationary environment. They do well in kind of a late cycle environment. Many of these companies are high yield, so we have been kind of dipping a little more into the high yield market to be able to add yield in the portfolio and just to be able to be shorter in duration without giving up too much yield relative to the benchmark. I've heard the term rising stars used in the high yield market. Can you explain what that is and what impact that's having on your market? Yeah, the rising stars are the high yield double B companies that get upgraded by the rating agencies to investment grade and then they move out of our market and into Lorenzo's market. That's the opposite of the fallen angels. We saw a lot of energy and commodity related names get downgraded in 15 and 16. Some of those same companies were subsequently upgraded in 17. So the net effect for us is it's, it's part of the supply shrinkage that I talked about is those companies move out of the high yield market and are upgraded. Managers typically sell those as they tighten and then have to redeploy those proceeds into other parts of the high yield market. So it acts as flows into the market effectively for us as we see some of the supply move out. I think an overarching theme is that credit quality and credit statistics are improving. I mean, we've seen the upgrade downgrade ratio across all rating categories improve this year. You know, we're running more upgrades than downgrades than we have for some time. So I think it's indicative of what we're seeing with fundamentals in the market. Generally, to Tom's point about credit quality statistics improving in a supportive macro backdrop, you know, we as IG investors have been comfortable dipping into the double B part of the market to be able to capture some of these rising stars before they enter the index. So for us, anytime we could buy a bond or a name that has above index spread with below index duration, we just think this environment's very good to be taking on a little more credit risk without necessarily as much duration. And 
as Tom suggested, many of the names, the energy and metals names, we're familiar with from when they fell out of the IG market in 2015 and 16 into the high yield market. It's kind of interesting that they're coming right back to us. So to the extent we could kind of capture some of that crossover premium before it enters the index, that's a pretty good off-benchmark bet for us to be able to add a little incremental alpha to the portfolio. Obviously, Fed policy is very important, keeping an eye on that for your markets. But what else are you tracking? What are the key indicators? Is it very company specific or is it very macro? What are you tracking most closely for your portfolio management at the moment? I think the macro environment is shifting. You know, we've been in a very, very accommodative period from central banks, and we spoke about volatility coming off such low levels that for us, it's a little more about directionality than it is about specific credit selection. When we think about the environment of 15 and 16, where volatility was so low, it was very important for us to pick our credits well because we weren't really getting a lot of spread compensation for those at that time. For us now, we're really focused on direction of rates, part of the curve, and some sectors. When you throw in the Amazon impact of many retail names or pharma names, it just seems like risk reward is still relatively limited in many industrial sectors, which is why we prefer financials. But for the most part, from a total return perspective, duration is really going to outweigh most spread moves. So you know, for us, just being shorter and cognizant of a still reasonably tight level of spreads. Obviously, for us, the most important thing is how our individual companies are performing and executing. I mean, away from that, you know, just in terms of monitoring company behavior, I think it'll be interesting to see now that growth is picking up in the economy, whether you see companies behave more aggressively, either via leveraging acquisitions, you know, plan expansions, et cetera. I mean, the one benefit we had over the last eight or nine years is that post-crisis companies were fairly conservative. And that was a good environment for credit. You know, 2% growth and pretty conservative management teams was a constructive environment for credit. The worry is that we have an accelerating economy and you overlay that with some of the fiscal stimulus, deficit spending, tax reform, et cetera. And, you know, we overheat a little bit. And so monitoring company behavior, monitoring LBO, private equity behavior. I mean, obviously, we've not seen a lot of LBO activity. It's been pretty muted given equity valuations. You know, obviously, the new tax plan does further discourage leverage as it has caps on interest rate deductibility. So those are things we're watching. I think we're still in an elongated cycle, but we're certainly talking more about the worry, and it's not in the near term, is that the Fed gets behind, they have to get more aggressive, and this cycle ends like all the cycles do. You know, you start creating excesses that you have to wring out with higher rates. That's not our base case, but that certainly is talked about much more now than it was for the prior seven or eight years, where, as you mentioned earlier, all we were worrying about was we're growing at one or two percent, and are we going to roll back over and go into a recession? We seem to have replaced that with fears of overheating, geopolitical, trade wars, tariffs, etc. So there's a set of new worries, but for us, the most important thing is company execution at the micro level. I think the points about the speculative activity and potentially more leveraging transactions is is a very important one. And just from a macro perspective, we don't have the environment of central bank purchases that we saw in 15 and 16. You don't have as much of a backstop in terms of flows coming into your market to support any weakness in spreads. Rather, it's actually going the other way. So again, in an environment, to Tom's point about 
of vol picking up where there is speculative activity, the price action could be a lot more damaging than it was when we had lots of flows coming into the market supporting it. Let me ask you, I think this question of less of a backstop by the central banks is seen to be very negative. But for you as portfolio managers, I would have thought you would welcome some of that. Obviously, when they're stepping in, it's also stopping your ability to take opportunities to pick up good value sectors, companies. So is there a positive to that as well? Yes, there absolutely is. It's just the path at which we get there. You know, our index at 100 OAS is only a couple basis points off of the post-crisis tights. We'd like to see spreads kind of widen and adjust to this new environment of greater volatility until we kind of step in and really go out searching for value. You know, we're not completely void of risk in portfolios. We have an overweight to financials versus an underweight to industrials, but we'd like to see things shake out a little wider before really entering into many of these industrial sectors at these levels. Let me summarize what I think you've said today to check that I understand. So your core view is that the inflation is going to rise, but it's going to be very gradual, and therefore the Fed will be raising rates, but from a low base in a very gradual fashion. And although the U.S. is raising rates, you've still got this accommodative stance from the ECB and the Bank of Japan, which is keeping some kind of anchor, at least on the longer term of these yield curves. And therefore, the tailwinds to corporate fundamentals this year are still strong. And in fact, this bit of volatility gives you a bit of opportunity. But maybe as we get towards the back end of the year and Perhaps we're talking about the Fed being off the accelerator and closer to the break. That's the point where things could get a little bit more difficult. Is that a reasonable summary? I think so. And in terms of the Fed, I think it's not until the end of next year where we see kind of more risks to a slower growth environment materializing. I think benefits of deficit spending and tax reform will continue to support the economy in 19. We don't see that risk in 19, rather it's more of a 2020 phenomenon when the Fed kind of limits potential growth as financial conditions get too tight that the market starts worrying about recession. Okay, so it's been a long recovery, but it's still got further to run. I think that's fair. Great. Thank you for joining us on Insights. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on March 9, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. 
Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.